Exodus 20 is where we turn this morning, Exodus 20 and the Mosaic Law. It's the focus of our time together. It will be over the next several months. It's that perfect 10, right? The perfect 10, not because we've had to memorize it somewhere along the line or because we've had our hand slapped or our mouth washed out, washed out with soap. They did do that. They used to do that. For breaking part of the perfect 10, that's somewhere along the line. Um, uh, but they are the, the perfect 10 because they capture the gracious heart of our God towards His people. Uh, these are the stipulations that are life-giving, what we need to enjoy life with our God, to enjoy life um, together in relationship with each other. Um, so these commands, obedience to God's commands, are what, we, what actually free us to live in the way we've been made to live. How many of us are used to thinking about God's law that way? You know, something that we need, something that we're thankful for. So, you know, I asked the question. So here I'm, I'm going to actually ask you to raise your hands. Typically we don't do this in a sermon because that can be embarrassing. Uh, but I'm going to ask you to raise your hands. Okay, how, how many of you desire to honor God and to love the Lord with all of your heart? You, you want to honor God and love God well. Yeah, that's a lot of hands. Thank you. Um, brothers and sisters, if that is true for you, if that's true for me, then we need these commands. We need to know the heart of our God and what pleases Him. Uh, given us the means to, to love Him, both in, in the instruction here, in the words, and with the enabling power of His Spirit. I mean, we can give praise to God for this. How good is our God in giving us what we need to obey Him, what we need to love Him? I feel like we just need to pray after considering that for a second. So let's do that. Lord, we praise You that You have given us Your Word. Specifically, that You have given us these covenant obligations and this law that we might know how to love You, to exercise our love for You and for one another. Lord, we know we cannot do this apart from Your help. But You've promised to help us, to be with us, to be in us, enabling us to obey. And so Lord, we thank You that in Your grace, in Your mercy, in Your love that knows no ends, You would communicate to us Your heart through this law. We praise You in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to turn now to the second word. The second command that God gives to Israel, they're encamped at Mount Sinai. We read the word, they heard it from the base of the mountain there as God makes covenant with His people. So Exodus 20, we'll read the first six verses. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments." Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Those are maybe familiar words from uh, a hymn, a very powerful hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It's one of my favorite uh, hymns from a pastor and farmer 
in uh, Robert Robinson. And we, we pray in this song for the Lord's blessing and that He would capture our hearts. And yet, because we have this propensity to wander away from Him, and not just every once in a while, but all the time. All the time, we're scratching for ways to, to put ourselves on an equal footing with the Creator God. And if we're going to put ourselves on an equal footing with the Creator, well then somehow we, we have to, to pull God down to a more manageable, a more controllable level. If we're going to do that, if we're going to, to bring God down to a more manageable and controllable level, that usually means we have to exalt ourselves. We see this happening at the very beginning of the story in Genesis 11. The people of the earth, they're all of one language. They're growing very quickly. So out of fear of being dispersed, they say, well, let's make a name for ourselves. We'll build a tower into the heavens. And so instead of dispersing and filling the earth and subduing it as God has commanded them, they elevate themselves. They weren't worshiping the God of heaven. They were going to claim heaven without God. So maybe they could scale God down a little bit with this you know, massive building project that we read about in Genesis. Well, God ends up somewhat comically as you read this, coming down to look at their building projects and He has to encourage them to be about the mission He's given them to disperse, to fill the earth but prone to wander, prone to leave, prone to worship in ways that God has not prescribed according to His Word. So we're still building towers. They just don't really look like towers. We're still trying to limit God's power and His control. Maybe keep Him more contained. Contain Him to something that's more familiar. Something that we know proneness of our hearts towards idolatry. That's what we talked about last week. Moves us into why we need uh, the second command so much. So the people of Israel, they're, they're chosen, they're set apart, and their worship is to be distinguished from those around them, to be distinguished from the other nations. It's to be an imageless worship. That would have been very different. The God who's rescued them from the hand of the Egyptians could not be limited. He couldn't be localized into something created by men. Listen to what the Lord says uh, through Moses in Deuteronomy 4. I'm going to read several verses here because it really provides excellent commentary to this command. This is Deuteronomy 4, beginning at verse 14. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and rules, that you might do them in the land that you are going over to possess. Therefore, watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. Things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of His own inheritance as you are this day. So watch carefully. 
you hear that? We're prone to wander, enticed to worship the things that we see. This happened to Israel at the base of, of Mount Sinai. We're not quite there yet in Exodus, but Exodus 32. I mean, this is amazing. They're left trembling at the majesty and the power of God at the mountain. They've heard His voice. I mean, you, you think that would leave a, a pretty lasting impression. But they haven't even moved on from the base of the mountain before, you know, a little golden calf, or maybe a bigger golden calf. That, that would suffice. So we begin to see that the close connection here between the first command and the second command. The first one prohibits any gods altogether, any other gods. No idolatry. And the second prohibits the making of an idol or an image out of anything in creation that's intended to represent God or confine God to that particular thing. God is limitless. He's transcendent. He's holy. John chapter 4, it tells us that God is spirit and He is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So to limit God, to confine God to a created form, is actually to mock Him. We cannot fashion the omniscient, the omnipotent, the all-powerful God, the omnipresent in all places God. Certainly not something that we can dream up or create. Now notice, as I read through those verses, it did not prohibit the making of all images altogether. Um, you know, no sculpting, painting, no carving, drawing, anything like that. No, that's not there. Think how miserable that would be. How life-zapping that would be if we couldn't do that. Create anything that we see in the world around us. Quite the contrary, actually. God instructs His people to make images throughout the redemptive story. A tabernacle, or the Ark of the Covenant, or altars, or garments, or a temple. These are all created things, created according to God's design, to give a sense of His presence, of His power, His nearness to the people. But they were never intended to be worshipped. We have an image today, we have a New Testament carved image. There's one on the wall right behind me. Um, It represents something very powerful to us, central to our lives in relationship to God. But this wood shape is never intended to be worshipped or venerated in some way. Um, So we can think, okay, we got this. It's covered, but we're, we're still in that first question. Why we need this command. We need to understand where images actually reside. We may not worship the cross. I mean, we understand that. Okay, we're not melting down jewelry to make idols, whittling away, you know, bowing down to the stars on a clear night. Most people in our culture aren't, aren't going to be doing that. But most of us are going to violate this command with the images we have here. Mental images, the un, unguarded use of our imaginations. I mean, when you think about that, that should drive us to our knees. I mean, I'm, I'm floored at our imaginations. We have astounding imaginations. God's you know, given by God. I mean, think of all the things that we've created by the imaginations of, of men. You know, every portrait, every movie, every building, every symphony... One of my daughters was out with a few dolls at the little island we have in the front yard yesterday, and they were camping 
and using pieces of wood chip and other things that she found just around just to, just to camp. I thought that was really cool. What a great use of imagination. But then as children grow, become adults, you know, that, that make-believe you know, starts to take on more realism. It needs to. We need to understand people and relationships the way they really are, not the way we imagine them to be. It's true in our relationship with God. We cannot trust our imaginations. Remember, prone to wander? Prone to leave the reality of who God is and the way He has revealed Himself and worship a God as we imagine Him to be. Um, That's when we run into danger, when our imaginations lead our thoughts about God. So all the images that you and I can see, things that we can touch, you know, smell, um, those are, are, are the manifestations of the things that, that we uh, imagine. The psalmist warns about this, um, resting in our own understanding of God, how we envision Him to be. He says, These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God. Lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. So our our imaginations are going to utterly fail at capturing who God is in all of his fullness. And it typically goes something like this. Here's the sentence. I like to think of God as, and then fill in that blank. I like to think of God as father. I like to think of God as mother. I like to think of God as architect. I like to think of God as you know, director. Um, and we can identify so many characteristics of God in doing this, in, in his nature. I mean, he is the architect of all things. He is the director of the great story of redemption. But none of them really captures the full essence of who God is as the one we are to worship. Our God is love. He is patience. He is all truth. Um, he's all mercy, all wisdom. Wisdom to the nth degree. How do you capture that? Um, contain that. Um, so I hope this helps us see how we need this command a little bit more. Uh, thankfully, it's God who directs, reorients our imaginations. So how do we see this command then transformed, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus? It's shown to us in the New Testament that Jesus is the image of God in the flesh. So in order to understand this, we need to understand the image of God in us as people and in the image of God in Jesus. Several years ago, there was an exhibit at the London Zoo. This is several years ago now. Uh, and, and as you come to this exhibit, it was, a, it was a full caged exhibit and it had a sign on the front that said, Warning, humans in their natural habitat. And there were humans who had volunteered, you know, they had, had entered this contest and they were selected. And so some of them were, were playing a game, some of them were sunbathing, some of them were just standing there waving at others walking by the exhibit. And there was, you know, on the placard, here's the threat to the species. Here's where they're distributed around the world. Um, Here's what causes disease, just like you'd expect to find at any other exhibit in the zoo. Um, 
And so the point was pretty clear. right? Human, humans are just another primate. They're just another animal that you walk by and view. I think most of us would be kind of shocked if we went to the zoo and saw something like that. Because for, it doesn't seem to align with reality. Because nothing could be in greater contrast to this exhibit than the biblical definition of human beings. And though we are creatures, we are unique among the creatures. What is man that you are mindful of him? The Son of Man that you care for Him, that you've made Him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned Him with glory and honor. You gave Him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet. We are not just another type of animal. Every human being, fearfully, wonderfully made by God, in the image of God. So God has chosen to reflect Himself through human beings, male and female. So are, are there images of God all around us? Well, in a sense, yes. Are we all little gods? No. We're finite creatures created by an infinite God to represent Him, to rule as, as He rules. And so God, by His very nature, nature that's present here in the commands, He is the only one who can make images of Himself. So this means we must we need to fight for this. We need to fight to protect the image of God in human beings. That's all human beings, from the womb to the tomb. We're not to, we're not to play God with our imaginations and intellect. You've, you've probably you know, followed over the years, or at least heard about the research um, in genetic engineering, cloning. Um, you know, this is being done with, with human cells. In most cases, they... They tend to call it therapeutic cloning. But the research is growing and proponents of, of cloning say that it's, it's going to help in, in correcting uh, deficiencies in human development or, or other illnesses, deformities. And uh, you know, Eventually, I, I would guess that attempts have probably already been made, but you know, to actually clone another human being or subhuman life. But there's a fundamental problem with this, if, if we even label it a problem, right? Uh, and it has to do with, again, the reality according to God's design. Only God has the creative right. God has the copyrights to His image. So trying to create His image bearers outside of that one flesh union that He has designed, that would seemingly be in violation of this command. We get in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus shows us that we are uh, image bearers of God. We're not to create other images, but to give back the image of God to Him. We are to be God's image, not make God's image. Um, so we give ourselves in worship. We give back in, in sacrifice and praise. Uh, and no one would understand this better than Jesus. Jesus is the image bearer par excellence. So God says, you shall not make for yourself any image because I will make for you an image. Okay, only God can make His image and He has done so in the incarnation of Christ. So there's almost an applied promise here in the second command that's fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. 
Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 2, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So we get all of God's self-disclosure of who he is is found in Jesus. He's in every sense the image of God is to be worshipped as such. So if, if we're forbidden to make you know, objects, images of the highest being that we know with the intention of worshiping, whether it's private worship or corporate worship, you know, that would include images of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know that raises a few questions. Thankfully, we still have some questions to answer here. Um, how do we obey as disciples of Christ? How do we think about images and all the, the host of images around us? Do they have any place in our worship and so forth? Uh, if you are an image bearer of God, and I am an image bearer of God, then this command, first and foremost, should move us to praise. I mean, God is gracious in making Himself known. He makes Himself known through His Word. He makes Himself known through the brothers and sisters that are sitting around you. He's so very gracious in this giving us the exact imprint of Himself in Jesus. That should invoke our highest praise. Fill us with awe and wonder that God would do this. You know, if you had a, you know, a special scale or you could somehow measure your awe and your wonder before God, what is that reading right now? Where are you in the awe meter? Um, I think we, you know, we're, in, we're in danger here, particularly if we've been in the church for a while of losing our awe of God. Who He is, what He has done in giving us His image in Jesus. He delights to do this. These verses tell us that God is jealous for those who keep His commands. This jealousy is a love and zeal for the affection of His image bearers. God's love abounds from generation to generation of those who fear Him in reverence and in awe. So we must be people of praise, people of the Word. This command really carries weight in how we worship as God's people. We're to worship according to His Word, the revelation He's provided. Which means all of our worship is guided, it is grounded in the Word. We can't see Jesus physically, but we can hear Him through the Word. And how His Spirit illuminates this Word to our hearts. So God tells us how to think of Him in His Word. So one of the ways we, we apply this command is you know, to be aware of the power of images, especially in a culture that's driven by images. They become fixated in our minds. You know, far more so than words do. You know, I could say something up here this morning that would sound silly or be completely wrong and then brought to my attention. Well, I could come back and try and correct that. You know, say, well, here, I said this, but it really meant this. But images aren't, you know, they're, they're not so easily corrected, okay? We, we leave that image up there every week. You know, we'll, we'll change these paraments around, but for the last many weeks, you know, this, it's been this green color and what that signifies. Um, and so those things don't, they become fixated in our minds. Um, have you seen those, uh, what was I thinking of here? 
As we, as we apply this command today, you know, thinking about drawings, paintings, statues, all those things, um, here we find a, um, a healthy tension between a proper emphasis on the person of Jesus, okay, the, the physical man that Jesus was and is, and depicting the infinite God in a finite space. You know, we don't want to over-spiritualize you know, Jesus so he's just sort of out there in thin air. You know, Jesus is a man. He walked the dusty road. He had to dress himself. He had to use the bathroom after bad fish and all those sorts of things. Okay, he's a man. But at the same time, to gaze upon the face of Christ is to, to imprint in our imaginations a form that limits him as the Holy One. So God has told us in His Word what Christ we are to worship. We don't need any representations of Him in order to, to accomplish that. Isn't it interesting? We're not given any physical description of Jesus in the New Testament. I think the Lord has really guarded our hearts, our imaginations in that way. And the early church recognized, kind of distinguished between a, a representational art and a symbolism. That's not always easy to distinguish. But as the church grew and it became more widely accepted, the church would, would take images from the culture from that time period and use them in their symbolism. So things like a lion or a lamb or a cluster of grapes or a, a staff. These symbols and others, that they're, they're used in a narrative form. Okay, maybe you've seen, you've seen pictures and the, the stained glass windows. Maybe you've looked at pictures or had an opportunity to tour one of those large cathedrals and you see just the elaborate stained glass um, used to elevate the worship of the people. And they would come into that worship space and to tell the biblical story to many who are sitting there who are unable to read. And that's something that we have to think about today. It's not the case today. Okay, we are not an illiterate people have not, no opportunity to, to learn or to read, uh, unfortunately, we, we simply choose not to a lot of the time. Okay? We are, we're an illiterate people <laughs> instead of an illiterate people, uh, unwilling and not unable to read and to listen, to allow what we've read in God's Word to shape our understanding. Uh, so that can be challenging you know, to be a people of the Word in an image-saturated world. So our, our images should, should encourage and stimulate the reading of God's Word, not to, not to be a substitute for it. Uh, again, it can be difficult here to determine what is symbolic and what is representational, particularly when we're talking about images of Jesus, right? Um, we need to give thought to what's, what's happening in our thoughts, what's happening physiologically when we see these, these images. You know, if we're going to pray to the living God, the Lord Jesus, we have an image of Him that we're used to seeing, and we're going to come to think of that image in, as we pray. And we'd be in danger of violating this command. Pastor Ed Clowney is now home with the Lord. He provides a helpful distinction here, one that I really appreciate as we wrestle through how to avoid images of Jesus and yet incorporate the understanding of His physicality. He says the danger comes with portraits of Jesus. Think about that. 
We can have many representations of Christ. Uh, there are many. They're, uh, they're not portraits, but they focus on what, who Jesus is and what he has done. Um, so we can tell the story through portraits. You know, what your children are seeing. Some of you probably have the children's bulletin. I was going to look at it ahead of time and I forgot. But there may be a, an image in that bulletin of Jesus, Right? Uh, but not a, not a portrait of Jesus. So it depicts his actions, the actions of a man that we can learn about who Jesus is, what he's done, um, but it's not that, that portrait that invites us to worship. Um, and the same could be applied for films that depict Jesus. And these are actors who are portraying Jesus, events in the life of Christ, can really help us in understanding the life of Jesus, his sufferings. But then when, when the actor says, Come unto me, all you who labor, and I will give you rest, when the, you know, now it's that actor, that, that man on that screen that we're seeing and hearing those words from. And then it then it becomes a little fuzzier. So again, if our if our primary tool for learning about Jesus and life as a Christian you know, it, we need to be cautious here. It shouldn't come from watching the Jesus film or the Passion of Christ or things like that. That would be moving us in a direction counter to the thrust of this command. So am I saying you should never you know, watch anything like that? No. You need to be guarded. You need to be men, women, children of the Word. Constantly reminded to return to the Word. The words of life, the power of God through His Word. Um, so we know our God is gracious. Our God is compassionate. Uh, he will render justice to those who do not repent of their idol worship from generation to generation. We'll see the effects of this. But He will pour out His love to a thousand generations of those who cherish, who obey Him, obey His Word. So let's end that way. Do you, do you love your children? Do you love the generations to come? Then make much of Jesus and His Word. Let them see His image in you. Fall in love. Fall more in love with the living Word who is Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we admit sometimes it, is, it can be challenging to understand and apply these commands to us in this context in which we live. So Lord, we seek Your help in this, knowing that You will help us by Your Holy Spirit. Lord, guard our hearts. We thank You for our hearts and our minds and our imaginations and the creativity that You've given to us. But Lord, You have told us how to worship You. You have told us and shown us who You are through Your Word and through the living Word that is Jesus. We look to Him. We worship Him according to Your Word. Guard our hearts, guard our imaginations that we might worship You with all that we are, with every thought. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.